Good evening, I'm Amna Nawaz. Jeff Bennett is away. On the news hour tonight, big tech executives are grilled by federal lawmakers, accusing them of failing to protect children online. As it prepares to strike back, the United States blames a powerful Iran-backed militia in Iraq for the deadly attack on American troops. And a conservative critic of Donald Trump on what his possible renomination could mean for the GOP and the country. The anger and rage, the desire to target, the willingness to use methods that are anti-constitutional, the, the fascination with violence. These are characteristics of a different kind of politics than the kinds of politics in the past we've called conservative. Welcome to the News Hour. Senators grilled CEOs of top social media companies today in a hearing about child safety online that was emotional, heated, and contentious. Lawmakers tried to get companies to back proposed legislation, but must, much of the hearing was focused on questions of accountability, including over the deaths of children. Lisa Desjardins begins our coverage with this report. Before one word of testimony, a silent statement. Family members greeted tech CEOs by holding up photos of loved ones. Children, they say, were harmed by social media. Senators quickly voiced the sharp sentiment in the packed room. Mr. Zuckerberg, you and the companies before us, I know you don't mean it to be so, but you have blood on your hands. You have a product. You have a product that's killing people. The CEOs of Meta, X, TikTok, Snapchat, and Discord arrived after some were issued subpoenas to defend their platforms against charges they don't do enough to protect kids. We partner with nonprofits, law enforcement, and our tech colleagues. We've built more than 30 different tools. We made 690,000 reports to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. We make careful product design choices. X has zero tolerance towards any material that features or promotes child sexual exploitation. To many parents, the dangers have only grown. In 2023 alone, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children says it received more than 36 million reports of sexual exploitation of children online. And families cite devastating bullying, body image problems, drug trafficking, and suicides they see directly tied to social media. But Congress has not passed any of the major bills to restrict the companies or hold them liable since the 90s. Frustrated senators are deeply skeptical of industry-led reform. Coincidentally, several of these companies implemented common-sense child safety improvements within the last week. What I'm trying to understand is why it is that Instagram is... Um, only restricting, it's, it's restricting access to, to uh, sexually explicit content, but only for teens ages 13 to 15. Uh, why not restrict it for 16 and 17 year olds as well? Uh, Senator, my understanding is that we don't allow sexually explicit content on, on the service for people of any age. Um, the, the, um, How is that going? Uh, the CEOs stressed they collectively employ thousands of people to monitor content and have forms of age limits, as well as other tools to help protect kids. Linda Yaccarino of X, formerly known as Twitter, echoed that her company is open to change but wary of stifling legitimate content. Industry collaboration is imperative here. X believes that the freedom of speech and platform safety can and must coexist. We agree that now is the time to act with urgency. Senators, though, were out of patience and gave CEOs little time to respond, furiously saying they have heard enough. For years, you've been coming in public and testifying under oath that there's absolutely no link. Your product is wonderful. The science is nascent, full speed ahead, while internally, you know full well your product is a disaster. That led to an extraordinary moment with tech powerhouse Zuckerberg. Would you like to apologize for what you've done to these good people? I, 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 I'm sorry for everything that you have all gone through. It's terrible. No one should have to go through the things that your families have, have suffered. 
Zuckerberg argued that his company is devoted to and leading in safety. When a senator said Instagram is harmful, he responded. Senator, I disagree with that. That's not what the research shows on balance. That doesn't mean that individual people don't have issues and that there aren't things that, that we need to do to to help provide the right tools for people. Much is at stake here. Senators on the committee are pushing for a half dozen bills with new restrictions on social media companies, including an end to their protections from some lawsuits over content. Despite bipartisan support, senators fumed that the companies are blocking change. We haven't passed any of these bills because everyone's double talk, double talk. It's time to actually pass them. And the reason they haven't passed is because of the power of your companies. We've been working on this stuff for a decade. You have an army of lawyers and lobbyists that have fought us on this every step of the way. A rare bipartisan hearing with senators looking more for momentum than answers. No excuses. No excuses. We've got to bring this to a vote. But those future votes on the issue, like the Senate calendar, remain unclear. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Lisa Desjardins. As Lisa reported, many of those who attended today's hearing were parents who lost a child or whose child was injured. I'm joined now by one of them, Christine McComas. Her daughter Grace died by suicide in 2012 after being bullied and threatened online. Christine, thank you so much for being here, and let me say how very sorry we are for your loss. You were in the hearing. You were actually holding up this picture of Grace during that hearing. I just want to ask you what you thought about the questions from lawmakers, about what you heard from the executives. Well, just being there is a long time coming that, it, you know, it finally people are understanding the dangers that are inherent in the platforms, the social media platforms. And so the fact that we're having that hearing um, is wonderful, but then bring in all five of the biggest platforms that are hurting kids. Um, it, it's frustrating to me that it's been so long and it's been clear because of whistleblowers coming forward that they've known that it's harmful and they've not made the changes that need to be made. And today they were still not willing. On, the Kids Online Safety Act um, has to pass. It's urgently needed and um, they need to get on board and, and join us. Grace died as a result of the bullying and mm -hmm. the threats online. Tell us what that means. Why do you think social media played a role in her death? You know, she was a, a young teen. She was 14. Um, and actually, there was a drug-assisted sexual assault first, followed by the bullying. But the bullying was things like, I hate, 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 hate you. I hope you see this and cry yourself to sleep. And wake up and kill yourself. You might as well. You're just a lousy piece of... Um, Snitches should have their fingers cut off one by one while they watch their families burn. And this is abnormal. This is, she was terrorized. And there was no way to make it stop. There was no way to, to get it taken down. And we, you know, the, what COSA would do would, would make, you know, dedicated reporting for a child that is in distress or in crisis and, and you know, get things taken care of. If COSA had been in place, do you think Grace would still be alive today? I believe that we would not be where we are today. You know, there are a number of groups, civil rights group included, who say this could restrict free speech, it chills encryption adoption, or it could even force platforms to gather more information on kids. Do you see any of those as valid? Um, I, I know that I've heard those as well, and, um, you know, we have talked quite a bit um, with the bipartisan co-sponsors or not co-sponsors, but the actual sponsors of the bill, um, Senator Blumenthal and Senator Blackburn. And I know that they have been very careful to um, very strictly, ch they made changes that made more of the people happy that it's not going to do these things. They're not going to be collecting any more information. Um, and I know that there were questions about, you know, LGBTQ kids having a chill on them being able to find things, but it doesn't restrict information. It goes to the heart of how these platforms are designed and to make sure there are common sense guardrails to um, you know, st stop things happening to children. They know that the, you know, the whistleblowers came forward and from Facebook, two of them, over the last couple of years, one very recently, and brought proof that their studies, internal studies that no one knew about, proved that they knew 
that their products were hurting the kids and they chose not to do anything about it. Christine, there's a new generation of kids who are growing up extremely online. A new generation of parents who are trying to figure out what to do about that, how to keep their kids right. safe. What is your message to them today? I'm with a group of parents. We just launched a website this week called Parents SOS. It stands for um, Parents for Safe Online Spaces. And all of the parents have lost children to different online harms. And so when I say that you could be the most engaged parent and not be able to protect them, I mean that um, there are lots of bad actors, predators out there. Um, you know, from sextortion, which if, if your viewers don't know what sextortion is, they need to learn what sextortion is. Because, um, you know, people are pretending to be um, someone a child's age and they end up gaining their trust over time and then the minute that they send them any sort of a, a intimate photo of themselves, it turns around immediately with um, extortion for money, threats to release that to everyone they know. Um, and, you know, I met a, a couple of parents last night who there was only six hours from the time that they got the picture, they said, we want $5,000, and he's, you know, he's a kid, and he, he doesn't have that. And there were six hours from the time this happened to the time that he died. What do you want people to know about Grace? She was a great kid. Um, she literally was born happy. I mean, just bright blue eyes, smiling all the time, and she grew into a really gregarious, happy kid who was kind, and thoughtful and made us laugh every single day. She was very funny, she had a great sense of humor. And um, you know, she should still be here, but I am her voice now. So I don't want people to see me, I want people to see her. And I want changes to be made so nobody has to go through what we've been through. Christine McComas, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. In the day's other headlines, the Federal Reserve held steady on interest rates, keeping them at a 22-year high. Policymakers hinted that cuts might be coming later this year, but not immediately. Fed Chair Jerome Powell said he first wants further signs that inflation will keep falling to the central bank's target of 2 percent. We want to see more good data. It's not that we're looking for better data. It's a, we're looking at continuation of the good data that we've been seeing. It's not that the six-month data isn't, isn't low enough. It is. It's just a question of can we take that with confidence that we're moving sustainably down to 2 percent. That's really what we're thinking about. Fed officials have indicated they could cut rates three times this year by a quarter point each, but they've given no timetable. In Israel, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu met with families of hostages still held in Gaza. His office said he told them that efforts are underway to free the captives, but offered no details. In Gaza, Israeli military video showed continued heavy combat around Khan Yunus in the south. Gunfire reverberated outside hospitals. The UN's International Court of Justice has rejected most of Ukraine's legal case against Russia. Today's ruling dismissed claims that Moscow bankrolled Ukrainian separatists and discriminated against annexed Crimeans. The court did find that Russia illegally invaded Ukraine two years ago, but the Russians are expected to ignore that ruling. At the same time, the two sides swapped some 400 prisoners of war today. That came a week after the downing of a Russian plane purportedly carrying Ukrainian POWs. In Pakistan, former Prime Minister Imran Khan was sentenced to another 14 years in prison, this time on corruption charges. He's already serving three years for corruption, and yesterday he was sentenced to 10 years for revealing state secrets. All of this comes days before parliamentary elections. Back in this country, FBI Director Christopher Wray sounded a warning today that Chinese government hackers are going after critical infrastructure in the U.S. He told a House hearing that electrical grids, transportation and water treatment plants are targets. And the risk that poses to every American requires our attention now. China's hackers are positioning on American infrastructure in preparation to wreak havoc and cause real-world harm 
to American citizens and communities if and when China decides the time has come to strike. Also today, the FBI and Justice Department announced they disrupted a Chinese hacking operation that used hundreds of home and office routers in the U.S. to cover their tracks. House Republicans are pressing ahead to oust Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over border security. Early today, the House Homeland Security Committee approved two articles of impeachment in a party-line vote. The full House could vote next week. Republicans say Mayorkas has refused to enforce immigration laws. Democrats say it's all a political stunt. A major federal study has tied contaminated water at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina to sharply higher risk of various cancers. It finds the risk was at least 20 percent higher for Marines stationed there between 1975 and 1985 compared with other bases. It is the largest study of its kind ever done in the U.S. And on Wall Street, stocks sank as the Federal Reserve signaled that interest rate cuts won't come as soon as the market hoped. The Dow Jones Industrial Average lost 317 points to close at 38,150. The Nasdaq fell nearly 346 points, 2 percent, and the S&P 500 was down 1.6 percent. Still to come on the News Hour, new reporting reveals former NFL players were denied compensation for brain trauma. Drought lowers water levels in the Panama Canal, causing a major disruption to global trade. The exploding popularity of a new literary genre that mixes romance and fantasy, plus much more. This is the PBS NewsHour from WETA Studios in Washington and in the West from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. Today, the United States blamed an umbrella group of Iranian-backed proxies for the weekend attack that killed three U.S. soldiers. From Israel to Iran, the Middle East is on edge, waiting to see how the U.S. responds. Nick Schifrin reports. At an event commemorating the Gaza War today, Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps commander said he didn't want another war, but wasn't afraid of one. You know that we do not leave any threats unanswered. While we are not looking for war, we do not run away from it. Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps has long supported what Iran calls an axis of resistance to conduct forward defense against its enemies. In Iraq, that includes Khatayib Hezbollah, a member of the umbrella group Islamic Resistance in Iraq, which the U.S. today blamed for the attack on the Tower 22 base in Jordan last weekend that killed three U.S. Reserve soldiers. But yesterday, Khatayib Hezbollah claimed in a statement that Iran, quote, does not know how it fights and in fact opposes some of the group's attacks. And Khatayib Hezbollah pledged to, quote, suspend military action against the U.S. to, quote, avoid putting the Iraqi government in an embarrassing position. You can't take what a group like Khatayib Hezbollah says at face value. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby today dismissed the group's self-declared ceasefire and said the U.S. would have multiple responses. What we're anticipating here, which won't just be a one-off. As I said, the first thing you see will not be the last thing. Iran also supports the Houthis in Yemen, which have launched more than three dozen attacks on international shipping and openly trains for attacks on Israeli and U.S. forces. It claims to be fighting for Gazans, but many of the ships it has attacked have no connection to Israel. Today, the U.S. launched its 10th airstrike on a Houthi target in Yemen, and the Houthi spokesman said the group's attacks would continue. The Yemeni armed forces confirm they are taking all military procedures within the right to defend dear Yemen and in solidarity with the Palestinian people. For more on all this, we get two perspectives. Vali Nasser was an advisor at the State Department during the Obama administration and is now a professor at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced and International Studies. Ruel Mark Gerecht was a CIA operations officer in the Middle East in the 80s and 90s. He is now a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Thanks very much. Welcome both of you back to the NewsHour. Ruel Mark Gerecht, let me start here with you. How do you believe the United States should respond to the killing of the three U.S. soldiers in Jordan last weekend? I think the United States should take this directly to the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps inside Iran or along the coast. Uh, we should have an updated version of Operation Praying Mantis in 1988, where the U.S. Navy quickly destroyed the Islamic Republic's Navy. 
mutatis mutandis, something like that. I think anything short of that is likely to be unsuccessful, and you're going to see Iran continue its uh, proxy war strategy against us. Vali Nasser, how do you think the U.S. should respond to this attack that killed three U.S. soldiers in Jordan? I mean, the United States has stated that it does not want to wider war. Uh, if it does not want to wider war, attacking Iran directly uh, is not the way to go. First of all, uh, even though Qatar Hezbollah is backed by Iran, there's not evidence that Iran ordered the attack that killed the three Americans. Uh, that's number one. Secondly, uh, a direct attack on Iran is going to lead to a retaliation. We saw this uh, when, the, uh, when the United States killed an Iranian general, Soleimani, uh, during the Trump administration. Iran reacted with a barrage of missiles that hit American targets inside Iraq. And had an American been killed then, then we would have been at war. So, so it really goes down to what the United States wants to achieve from this, from this attack. Does it want to retaliate? Does it want to deter? Or does it want to expand the war? Well, Mark, correct. Uh, take on those two points. Uh, that would escalate. What you suggested would escalate this war. Uh, and there is no evidence that Iran actually ordered this attack. Well, one, I think you absolutely want to escalate. I mean, historically, the Islamic Republic has feared escalation. They had, under no circumstances, want to get in a duel with the United States. They know they'll lose. I would say Donald Trump's serious mistake was after the, uh, droning uh, Qasem Soleimani. And by the way, the leader of the Qatar Hezbollah at that time, Mohandas, was with uh, Soleimani and also died. It's a creature of the Islamic Republic. He didn't escalate. He should have responded. So the administration has to make up its mind whether it wants to be effective or it wants to retrench. Uh, if they do not take this directly uh, to the Islamic Republic, the odds of this being successful, I think, are very poor. Well, Nasser, what about that? If the U.S. wants to actually stop the attacks, Rua Markarek's point is that the strikes need to be inside Iran itself. No, I mean, if the, if the United States really wants the current spate of, uh, of conflict to, to end, it has to end the Gaza war. The only time that the, the, all of these attacks ended was when there was an eight-day ceasefire that was brokered at that time by the United States. The underlying cause of the current escalation is the war. And the idea that if you hit Iranians hard or you hit Hezbollah hard, somehow they will back away and, and let basically uh, the current war in Gaza go as planned could be a massive miscalculation. I mean, these countries have their own interest in this war, uh, both opportunities and fears. And, and yes, they don't want a larger war, but they're not going to step back uh, just because the United States is hitting them in order for the Gaza war to, to be conducted as, as is desired by, by Israel. So, and, and if we miscalculate, thinking that the Iranians will slink into their hole and, and don't respond, we may be surprised. I don't think the evidence shows that in the past that when, when we've hit them hard, they have, they have backed away. That is a convenient reading uh, uh, to say that. As I said, when we killed General Soleimani, it did not actually uh, end up uh, uh, with a de-escalation immediately. Iranians hit back. It was President Trump at that point who decided not to retaliate against a very provocative retaliation by Iran. Well, Mark, Greg, let me ask about Iraq. Uh, the U.S. is in the middle of conversations with the Iraqi government uh, that publicly says it wants the U.S. to leave the country, although the prime minister specifically does not put a timetable on that. Should that discussion about the future of U.S. troops in Iraq play into U.S. decision-making today about how to respond to this attack last weekend? Well, I, I don't think you can ever allow the United States to be held hostage by its bases abroad and its uh, forces abroad. And there's no question about it, the United States has bases in Iraq and elsewhere that are not properly armed uh, with anti-missile batteries. And it's an issue. Uh, the Israelis also have a problem in that if the Iranians were to unleash, uh, encourage Hezbollah to let loose its missiles, the Israeli Air Force, I think, fairly quickly would destroy those forces, but it could pincushion uh, Tel Aviv for a while. So it's, it's a real issue. But I think the overall problem is you can't let them 
hold you, essentially extort you, can't let them blackmail you. And I would have to disagree with Vali. I mean, the Iranians have been uh, gaming us and using a proxy war strategy long before the Gaza war broke out. It's a, close to a miracle that uh, Americans hadn't died earlier from the numerous attacks that Iranian allied militias, proxies, have launched against us. Bali Nasser, do you think that the U.S. should be thinking about the impact of its presence in Iraq when it considers how to respond to this weekend attack? Yes, because the Qatar Hezbollah are not Iranians, they're Iraqis. That organization and its other fellow militias are a political reality in Iraq. And they have significant power in the country, uh, among the po population, as well as in the halls of power with the government. And taking them on directly basically can undermine the central uh, Iraqi government and destabilize Iraq. In other words, United States and Iran can go to war with Iraq, in Iraq with one another, but they have to be also mindful that the casualty here would be Iraq. And the United States is trying to maintain troops and forces in order partly to protect the, the Iraqi government that it has set, set up. And, and it's not that straightforward that, that if you went after the militias, somehow Iraq will come out of this unscathed as well. Rural Mark Recht, I only have about 45 seconds, so very quickly. Uh, you heard John Kirby there largely dismiss the statement by Khatayib Hezbollah. Do you also dismiss it? Yes. I mean, as I said earlier, I think they are a creature of the Islamic Republic. Yes, they are Iraqis, but they have been in league uh, with Iran. The Revolutionary Guard Corps has given them a lot of money and training for a cause, and that is essentially they have the same goal to kick the United States out of Iraq, to humble the United States in the Middle East, to destroy Israel. And Vali Nasser, quickly to you, same question. Uh, should the U.S. take seriously what Khatayib Hezbollah said yesterday, which was essentially a unilateral ceasefire? Well, we shall see if they follow through. I mean, actions speak louder than, vo uh, than, than words. But I would say that uh, perhaps uh, they, they have realized that they have come to the brink of, of something dangerous and may, may back away. That does not end the conflict. Yeah. This, uh, there, this will continue while this war is going on in Gaza. Vali Nasser, Raul, Mark Correct. thank you very much to you both. My pleasure. Thank you. In a landmark 2015 settlement, the National Football League promised to compensate former players who developed dementia and other brain diseases linked to concussions. Since then, the NFL has awarded $1.2 billion to more than 1,600 athletes. But a Washington Post investigation found the league saved hundreds of millions of dollars by rejecting payouts to hundreds of retired players suffering from dementia, including many who died. Washington Post reporter Will Hobson joins me now to discuss his investigation. Will well, thanks for joining us. You reviewed 15,000 pages of documents related to the cases of 100 former players. You spoke to players and widows and doctors. Before we get into the details, what kind of trend emerged in your reporting about how the NFL viewed and treated these claims? Well, we found that basically that this settlement has its own unique way to define dementia. And that's one big component that, that there are players out there, many players out there, who are getting diagnosed with dementia, and they, they obviously have the symptoms of dementia, but they don't meet the settlement standards. So they're getting denied for money and medical care that they and their lawyers thought they were going to get. So the leagues of the players suffering from CTE would get the settlement claims once they develop signs of dementia. Your reporting found of 1,241 former players who filed dementia claims based on diagnoses from their doctors, only about 15% were approved. Why so many denials? Well, uh, the, the league contends there's been a lot of fraud, and, and I do believe that that, that is true. There, there were a significant number of, of players who didn't actually have these conditions who attempted to get paid. But, um, you know, as we documented, there also are a lot of guys out there who indisputably had dementia, went through this process, saw their claims get denied, and then died and had CT confirmed that autopsy. You do tell the story of Irv Cross, a former NFL star, who's a barrier breaker as well in terms of being an on-air broadcaster for the league for years. What happened to him? Mr. Cross, when he went through this process in uh, 2018, he had already been diagnosed with dementia. Uh, he was having, at this point having trouble speaking, um, maintaining conversation. Uh, the doctors even noted that um, his, his clothing was soiled that day. His wife said she needed to remind him to change his clothes. 
but uh, he didn't uh, score low enough on cognitive tests for the NFL settlement's definition of dementia. So he was denied, uh, or he was told he didn't qualify for a settlement payment. He ultimately passed away a few years later of what his doctors thought was Alzheimer's disease, but an autopsy found it was actually CTE. And how common was that kind of case? Uh, without being able to review every of the every one of the thousands of denials, we couldn't tell you exactly precisely how common. But uh, I, the the NFL is easily saving hundreds of millions of dollars based on how this settlement was designed. Well, you've also reported previously on the race norming practice that was negotiated as part of the settlement, meaning that black players were treated differently when it came to cognitive assessment than white players. Even the black players make up the majority of the league. Did any of that impact these diagnoses and the settlement payments? Uh, they did. They did. I mean, Mr. Cross actually was one example. His part of the reason he didn't qualify on the cognitive test score front was because his scores were race normed, uh, which is basically the, the test scores were curved and adjusted a little bit based on a formula that assumes black former players uh, naturally perform worse on these cognitive tests than, than white former players. And how does the NFL and the representatives respond to everything you reported? Well, the NFL. Uh, contends that the settlement's definition for dementia isn't actually more difficult than, than the regular one and that the doctors we've interviewed on that point are mistaken. Uh, they also point out that the settlement is overseen by an independent administrative law firm and a federal judge. And so the NFL isn't directly controlling how a lot of these claims play out. It's a fascinating investigation. People can read the full report online. That is Will Hobson of The Washington Post joining us tonight. Will, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thanks. With primary season in full swing and a seemingly unstoppable GOP nomination for former President Donald Trump, Judy Woodruff explores what another Trump nomination and presidency could mean for the Republican Party and for the country. It's part of her series, America at a Crossroads. It's not even February, and former President Trump appears to be on his way to sewing up his third GOP nomination to the highest office in the land. Well, I want to thank everybody. This After is wins in Iowa and New Hampshire, polls show him leading in South Carolina and beyond. Elected Republican leaders are scrambling to climb on board. Texas Senator John Cornyn joined over half the GOP members of the Senate and most of those in the House. I have, I have endorsed him wholeheartedly. I think he's the right person to fix the problems. We Trump. But not all those in Republican and conservative circles are joining up, including Atlantic magazine writer David Frum, former speechwriter for President George W. Bush and a longtime Trump critic. Trump has he's got some skills, and one of his skills is understanding where the pain points are in people, the, the things that make them upset, both his friends and his enemies. How do you make your enemies upset? Because it's often a great asset. Uh, or a resource to a politician like him to have upset opponent, to make the opponents crazy with rage too. How does he fit into the tradition of conservative thought in the United States? If cons conservatism means protecting things that are precious in America, being mindful of the hazards of change, um, setting limits on power, setting limits on appetite, well, Donald Trump isn't any of those things. Donald Trump is exactly the person and exactly the thing that conservative thought has always sought to exclude from power. The whole point of conservative politics has been um, that you want to have power distributed, you want to have power decentralized, uh, you want to um, make sure that the people who come to power are people who um, both understand the constitutional restraints on power, but also have the personal, the character restraints on their own appetites. The anger and rage, the desire to target the willingness to use methods that are anti-constitutional, the, the fascination with violence. These are characteristics of a different kind of politics than the kinds of politics in the past we've called conservative. How do you explain the loyalty that, that Donald Trump has today? Well, we've, we've seen that kind of loyalty before in state-level politicians. Mayor Curley in Boston, who somehow got the support of a certain segment of Irish Catholic Boston. Huey Long in Louisiana. What these kinds of leaders do is they associate their hurts and grievances 
with other people's hurts and grievances. And they use hurts and grievances as permission to break rules. Uh, and because they've convinced people that the people who are enforcing the rules are your cultural enemies. And even if I did break the rule, the fact is you're still, I'm on your side and they're not. I don't think we've ever seen this before with a federal and a successful federal politician who said, I want to speak to hurts and grievances across the whole culture, across the whole country, and everyone who tries to enforce rules on me is an enemy of yours. For someone who has been at the center of conservative thought, of watching conservatives, watching the Republican Party progress over time, tackle tough issues, do you feel that you should have seen something like Donald Trump coming along? I did my grieving for my Republican Party in 2010, 11, and 12. So I'm now deep into my, my widowhood. I can, I can think about this pretty analytically. I went to Tea Party rallies and I said, not only do I not recognize this, actually, on second thought, I do recognize this and it's everything I'm against. Uh, so that was hard. Um, but when Trump came along, look, I was shocked because he was so personally wicked. Um, but I was not shocked in that this was a completely different thing from what I'd been seeing before. There's a, uh, an animosity, a personal nature to the differences that people feel now about politics. What is the effect that Donald Trump is having on that? And if he were reelected, what effect would it have? Well, I wonder whether there's really more division in the country today than at other points in the past. Remember the feeling about Vietnam and the draft. I bet families had trouble sitting down over dinner uh, in 1969, 70, and 71. Debates over civil rights and the integration of schools in the early 1950s and early 1960s. I bet there are families that had difficulty reconciling about that. But back then, the political system saw its job as managing. Leaders knew this is an incredibly diverse country, rural versus urban, race upon race, ethnicity upon ethnicity, religion upon religion, sometimes men against women, young against old, rich against poor, all of these potential fault lines. And it's the job of the people who meet in the buildings down the road here to manage that, to say, we keep, while everyone else is getting excited, we keep our cool. And we remember that what is really important are dams and roads and uh, high schools and defense plants, and we're going to make the deals based on that, and we're all just going to lower the temperature at the center. But the political circle at the top no longer sees these conflicts as dangers to manage. They see them as resources to exploit. And Donald Trump is better at this than just about anybody, that, that they take this dangerous stuff and they say, that is going to be not something I'm going to try to contain, but something I will use for fuel. What effect does that have on today's divisions. We'll be more fractious, we'll be more argumentative, because all the demons that exist in any society will not only be liberated by the political system, but will be encouraged. Um, because Donald Trump will be looking to his constituency of very upset people in order to impose his lawless will upon the constitutional system. I want to get away with Watergate. I want to pardon myself. I want to fire prosecutors. I want to do all the things that Nixon did, and many of the things that Nixon never dared to do. And I'm, I'm telling you in advance I'm going to do them, and I want my followers to frighten the political system into letting me have my way. And if Trump does use the criminal justice system to shut down investigations into his own conduct, including alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 election, the consequences will be dire, according to Frum. The country will be in the streets. Congress will be in an uproar. We will talk about nothing else. There will be no other policy. There will be no other topic. He won't be able to accomplish anything. There will be resignations from the Department of Justice. There may be resignations from the military. It is going to be chaos, and the chaos will never stop. And if, conversely, Joe Biden wins re-election, what happens to the current state of our country, of our polarized state? Uh, Sigmund Freud, the founder of psychiatry, is supposed to have said that the purpose of psychiatry is to convert hysterical, obsessive neurosis into ordinary unhappiness. If Joe Biden wins, we get all our usual problems back. Rich versus poor, urban versus rural, climate change, deficits, uh, structure of world peace, trade with China. Not a single problem will be fixed, but we will have a working set of institutions with which to address the problems. And our disagreements won't go away. You will just have non-sociopathic, non-psychopathic people saying, okay, the, the people outside this room disagree a lot. 
we are going to sit down at the table and find something we can agree on so that I can take something to my people and you can take something to your people. No guarantee, however, that the divisions among the American people would ease up. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Judy Woodruff in Washington. An extreme drought in Panama is forcing authorities to substantially scale back shipping through the Panama Canal, one of the world's key shipping channels. And it comes at a time when traffic has also been disrupted through the Suez Canal, where commercial shipping has been limited by the widening Middle East conflict. Stephanie Sai looks into the problems for the critical Panama Canal. The canal is one of the most important waterways in the Western Hemisphere and typically carries 5% of the world's maritime trade and 40% of U.S. container traffic. But with water levels below normal, authorities are only allowing 24 ships to cross a day, down from 38. That means more delays and higher shipping costs. The Panama Canal Authority's Deputy Administrator, Ilya Espino de Morata, joins me now from Panama. Ms. Morota, thank you so much for joining the news hour. So describe the severity of the situation at the Panama Canal right now. You're operating at a reduced capacity, 24 ships a day. Do you expect um, that volume to go even lower in coming days and months? Hi, good afternoon. Happy to be here. Um, no, actually, we are forecasting that we'll stay at 24 until the end of April, beginning of May when hopefully rainy season starts again. So we have to reduce the amount of traffic because we are just entering the dry season in Panama. So we'll have no rain whatsoever. And uh, we had a very dry season in 23 because El Nino uh, effect. Now you saw that all over the world, not only Panama. So we were forced to reduce the number of transits and maintain a 44 foot draft for our clients not to be impacted too much. So. We have less slots where we're trying to give a draft that is still very competitive for the industry. And hopefully we'll stay at 24 until rainy season comes back in uh, late April, early May. What if the rains don't come back? Uh, you mentioned the periodic weather pattern, El Nino, but I've also uh, seen quoted meteorologists that say climate change has exacerbated a drought there. Um, do you really see relief coming with the next rainy season? And what if that relief doesn't come? Yeah, no, we're looking at NOAA predictions and predictions do say that El Nino is weakening and we're going into the April, May, June uh, quarter. We're looking that uh, is we're going to neutral and maybe at the end of the year, towards October, November, December, El Nina effect will come in, which means a lot of rain. So according to the meteorologist forecast of NOAA, that's the perspective. So we don't think that we will have a problem coming rainy season next year. If for any reason um, the rainy season delay, then we might have to adjust uh, either draft or reduce one or two more transits per day to maintain uh, the lake until rainy season comes in, if it comes a little bit later in the in, the, in that uh, quarter. I, I want to ask you about long-term planning. Gatun Lake, which I understand feeds the Panama Canal, um, there are also thirsty cities that draw water from that lake, and there is this ongoing drought. Are you in a place now where you are having to plan for perhaps an alternative reservoir to make sure that the canal can stay functional um, in years to come, not just this year? Yes, definitely. We're looking at a, um, a, a very holistic project that is not only an additional reservoir. And we do have two reservoirs. We have Alajuela Lake, which also provides portable water for the population and is a regulatory lake for the Gatun Lake. So we have two lakes currently, and we were able to fill Alajuela Lake to the maximum. So let's say portable water is assured for the population, and um, that's why we reduce transit. But we are looking at two additional projects to have uh, increased water saving measures. And then we're looking at a new reservoir that will be built on the western side of the Panama Canal watershed. We have analyzed the project. It will provide water for either 11 to 16 lockages per day. 
And that's a project that we hopefully will be embarking uh, sometime in late 24, early 25. Uh, Ms. Morata, tell me what your level of concern is. Um, you make it seem like it's a temporary problem for this year with the El Nino weather pattern, and yet there's long-term climate change concerns and, and drought concerns. How do you make sure that the Panama Canal continues to be sustainable? Well, we have experienced dry years before. 2016 was a dry year. 2019 was a dry year. 2023 has been the dry. So we we can see that there is a pattern change. This has impacted the entire world, not just Panama. Uh, the Rhine River, the Mississippi River, the Amazon River, Argentina. So definitely 2023 has been a big impact. We uh, follow NOAA. We are definitely, we have, I have been appointed as Chief Sustainability Officer for the canal to impact not only the canal, but also worldwide policy to go into carbon neutrality, to be... Um, net zero carbon by 2050, but not just us, also the industry. So we are definitely putting in place policies to help towards um, a better environment and reduce the carbon footprint. Ilia Espino de Morata with the Panama Canal Authority. Appreciate you joining us. My pleasure. TikTok's popular book talk channel has been buzzing about a new genre called romanticy, and it's spawning whole sections in bookstores. Jeffrey Brown visited the stacks and talked to author Rebecca Yaros to see what's driving this trend. It's part of our arts and culture series, Canvas. 90-second warning! It was nearly midnight at a Los Angeles bookstore last November, and fans couldn't wait to get their hands on Iron Flame, the hotly anticipated second novel in a series that began with the breakout bestseller, Fourth Wing. Together, the two books have now sold more than six million copies worldwide. Author Rebecca Yaros had been writing and publishing for 10 years, but had no idea what would ensue when she turned to a story that mixes dragons and magic with romance. It was shocking, to say the least. My publisher was prepared. I was not. Um, I was not prepared for any of it, not the, the platform growth or um, being recognized or seeing it out in public. That completely shocked me, to say the least. It's still shocking. I rated it four stars, which is saying something considering I'm not really a fan of romance and fantasy books. Now she and her books are everywhere, alongside authors like Sarah J. Mass, Jennifer Armentrout, and others who create romance dramas in the midst of epic fantastical worlds. Romance and fantasy, now a full-blown subgenre with its own name, romanticy. It's basically fantasy with a written in a romance vein, right? I just think it speaks in whole to women, and then it also brings men in, because men love dragons, um, I'm finding out. I think it's just, the market is cyclical, and it was ready. We have a, like, all romance. Leah Koch is co-owner of The Ripped Bodice. Do you find everything okay? A romance-focused independent bookstore she and her sister first opened in Los Angeles in 2016, and more recently here in Brooklyn. Fantasy romance is sort of the ultimate escapism. You have both the romance element and then you have a literal different world. <laughs> sometimes outer space, sometimes some sort of kingdom that's been invented. Yeah. You know, we sell a lot of contemporary romance where people have to pay their taxes and have a parent <laughs> dying and, you know, do all sorts of... This is more likely to have, like, dragons. And exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. In fact, The Ripped Bodice is part of a small but growing network of romance-specific bookstores around the country. How do we define romance novels? Excellent question. Um, basically, there's only two criteria that you need. Central love story, happy ending. Central love story, happy ending. That's it. Must. Yes. That is one of the things that people love so much about romance novels. It's the comfort of knowing that everything is going to work out. And these days, romance works out in a whole lot of ways, including contemporary, queer, erotica, fantasy, and still the traditional historical section. It's a genre that may once have occupied a small, out-of-the-way section in a big bookstore. And Koch acknowledges had a stigma of light, second-rate literature attached to it. Now, she says... I think that attitude has changed a lot. 
throughout my lifetime, throughout even the amount of time we've been doing this, but it's it definitely still persists. The thing that I've noticed is people in general, but especially younger people, are getting much better at identifying how things like misogyny, sexism, racism, homophobia are impacting the stories that they're being told. So older generations were told, this is trashy, this is silly, this is should be read <laughs> under the cover of darkness. Well, why do you think that? Like, wh who's been telling you this? Like, what what has led to you having this belief? Because romance is a huge genre. And it's a genre with a nearly 100-year mass-market publishing history, studied by scholars such as Jayashri Kamble, a professor at LaGuardia Community College in Queens. One area of interest for her, how romance novels reflect their times. I often say that mass market romance fiction and novels, um, they change dramatically, but not traumatically. Dramatically, Const but not traumatically. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Meaning? By which I mean there's always movement, there's always change in what are popular themes, what kinds of couples, what kinds of understanding of sexuality, what kinds of understanding of gender presentation is sort of valued over time. So as society changes, Changes, the genre sort of changes along with it. But because it has this stable core, this hopeful idea that people ending. can ha be happy yeah. together, yeah. there's no trauma with the change. The latest focus on romanticity, she says, also reflects the way the genre has come in and out of public awareness. The house of romance has many rooms in it, and fantasy has always been one of those rooms, at least in the American mass market. So I think there's always these like interesting moments of like technological change, or like a bestseller suddenly starts to like appear in like because there's a major PR push around it. And, and now, of think, course, we have TikTok. Now we have TikTok. At the Rip Modest, Leah Koch has no doubt about its impact. I cannot deny the tangible financial impact that TikTok has had on my business. You feel it. Absolutely. Yeah. And and in a in a literal way. I don't mean like I, I mean people talk about a book on TikTok and then they come and they buy the book. Oh and you see the immediate response. Absolutely. Yeah. Um in a way that we didn't with Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. And we're all gonna have a great time. Becca Yaros credits Book Talk, TikTok's book community, for the popularity of her series. And she loves the direct connection to readers. But by doing them solid black, we could get this book into your hands by November. Book Talk is why Fourth Wing took off, without a doubt. I think Book Talk is one of the last areas where readers are really in control of what's put out there. Publishers can't control the marketing or anything they say. It's all word of mouth on BookTok. So if a BookTalker loves a book, they take it and they make it their own and off it goes and videos go viral. And it is really such word of mouth marketing that you can't get anywhere else because it is true just love of books over there. And Yaros thinks romanticy is speaking to this very specific moment in time, one she of course hopes will last. I think you're coming out of a post-pandemic world, and I think a lot of reading really shot up during the pandemic. So you have people who are coming into reading fiction um, that weren't there before. And now we have all these wonderful readers that we get to, that we, we get to give our stories to. Next up, she's writing book three of the series, eagerly awaited by readers here at the Rip Bodice and around the world. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Jeffrey Brown in Brooklyn. And remember, there's always a lot more online, including a look at how the rise in vaccine hesitancy could spill over to pet owners and how experts aim to stop that from happening. That is at pbs.org newshour. And that is the NewsHour for tonight. I'm Amna Nawaz. On behalf of the entire NewsHour team, thank you for joining us.